and we have been in a sermon series through the Gospel of Mark for several months, and we are now at the place where that song that we just sang, uh, Beholding the Cross, um, is where we are at today as we're coming near the end of Mark. We've only got three, counting today, three more weeks uh, in studying the Gospel of Mark, but we're going to be in Mark chapter 15. This morning. So if you have your Bibles, I would invite you, if you would, to make your way there. You, if you don't have a Bible with you or don't have a Bible of your very own, there should be one under the chairs in front of you somewhere. You're welcome to use that. Uh, if you don't have a Bible of your own, you're welcome to keep that as our gift to you, uh, that you might have a copy of God's Word of your very own. My wife, Sarah Lauren, and I, uh, we love to sit in the evenings after the boys have gone to bed, and as I'm sure many of you do, we uh, love to watch some television shows. And we've recently found a show on uh, Netflix that we have gotten hooked on. And in this particular series of shows, there is a crime that's been committed. An 11-year-old boy has been murdered, and it takes the entire first season to figure out who it is that did that. In the second season, that individual goes on trial, and at the very last minute, that individual uh, shocks everybody, including his own lawyer, when he declares that he is not guilty. And the entire second season is about this man's trial as well as some other things that are going on. And over and over and over throughout that season, that man sits um, in this glassed-in box because the show takes place in in Britain. And so he's in this glassed-in box where he is kept back from everyone and he is silent while his lawyers defend him. And the avenue of defense that they do is that they can't, they've got to come up with an alternative story and an alternative guilty party. And so person after person after person that this man claimed at one point to love, that he cared for, that at one point cared for him, are put on the witness stand in what's called the witness box. And insinuation after insinuation and accusation after accusation, false accusations are laid against all of these innocent people time and time and time again while he sits silent and lets somebody else take the blame. Eventually, it's the father of the young boy who was murdered who is placed in the stand and he stands there and he defends himself and all of his dirty laundry is aired in front of the town. All of the people that he worked for and worked with and cared for. And he stands there and you can see him break down over time as it is insinuated that he is the one who killed his son. And as I watched that, and I see this injustice take place of this innocent man who's not completely innocent, he has faults and failures in his own right, stand in that place and be accused and mocked and slandered while this other man, the guilty party, sits back and sits silent. And it left me thinking as I sit and I watch this injustice take place on screen and I get angry and angrier and angrier at this defense attorney making all these false accusations and insinuations. And I felt guilty myself because as I was watching that, I had a deeper emotional response to that false, fake story than I sometimes do when I come to the Gospel of Mark or the Gospels and read the story that I am so familiar with that is absolutely true. As Jesus was mocked and ridiculed time and again, in our place and in our stead. 
As we see here this morning, what we see is Jesus, the only one who is innocent, mocked and ridiculed and murdered in your place and in mine. Look with me, if you will, in Mark chapter 15, verses 16 and following. Mark picks up and writes, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his clothes, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. from can, He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled with sour, a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw, saw that it was in this way that he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we humble ourselves now. Before your throne, before your word, we have sung your praises. We have sung the truth and the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've sought your face in repentance, confession, and thanksgiving. Now, Holy Spirit, I pray as we come before your word, the word that you inspired so many centuries ago, knowing that we would be here on this morning as the rain pours down, to be reminded of exactly what it was that Jesus bore for our sake, the shame and the slander that he took upon himself that we might be saved. I pray that it would weigh not just heavy upon our hearts, but in weighing upon our hearts, it would then lead us deeply into a deeper humility and a dependence on you and your grace and your mercy, and that in seeking that, we would be set free to run with endurance this race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter and the finisher of our, of our faith. Before the glory, joy set before him, despised shame, that we might be free. So lead us into a deeper relationship, dependence and obedience. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. 
This is a longer passage of Scripture that we're going to actually break up over two weeks. I wanted to read all the way through the end of verse 39 with you because I want you to see that this is all one unit. This is what's taking place on the day that Jesus was crucified. But there's so much there that I could either spend an hour and a half preaching the entire thing or we could break it into a couple of weeks. But the entire unit's not just tied and united by the fact that Jesus is dying on the cross. Mark is linking everything that takes place here into the, the, the notion and revealing to us that everything that takes place is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Everything that takes place in this is an illusion to all that God had already prophesied was going to happen. And a couple of places that I would send you to on your own would be Isaiah 53, which many of us are familiar with, but particularly Psalm 22. Psalm 22 has all of the elements that take place here, from the bitter wine that is offered to Jesus Christ, to his cry from the cross, why have you forsaken me? to the mocking, to the shame, to the division of his cloaks. It's all a fulfillment of prophecy. Mark is linking this together and showing that this was the plan of God. And we're going to look at verses 16 through 32 this morning where we see, God, or we see Jesus Christ mocked by man. And next week we'll look at verses 33 through 39 where we see him forsaken by the Father. But in this, we see all of the promises of God for our salvation are fulfilled, and we also see the truth of Scripture on display in these events. See, in this passage of Scripture, as Jesus is mocked by men, what God does is he, is he takes the wisdom of man and he turns it into foolishness and he turns it on its head so that everything that these, these men and these passerby, passersby declare and spit against Jesus that they meant to be scornful and shameful actually turn out to be declarations of what is ultimately true. What they intend to be insults is actually truth. And the first thing that we see in this passage of Scripture as they begin mocking is that Jesus is the true king. As the soldiers now receive Jesus from Pilate, Mark tells us in verse 15 that they scourged Jesus. He just kind of passes over that little incident, says they scourged him and then they delivered him to be crucified. The scourge there is a technical term for a specific type of beating that Jesus would have received where they took him and they tied him to a post or they tied him down on the ground and they would beat him with several different people with a specific, what's called a cat of nine tails, which would have been a whip with several different strands that had bone and metal and all kinds of things tied into it. So that when it beat him, it didn't just bruise him, it would grab a hold of his flesh and rip it from his body. And there was no limit to the amount of times. You've heard about 39 lashes and 40 would have set you free. When it comes to a scourging, there was no limit. We know that there's records, historical records of men when they were done with the scourging, the flogging is another word that you might hear, that you could see their lungs through their back because the skin and the flesh and the muscle had been ripped from their body. And that's what happens to Jesus. And then he is brought before this cohort of soldiers, which could have been anywhere between 200 to 600 men, who now put him on display, mocking him as the king of the Jews. In our stories, we like the, to, to admire and, and we follow the stories of men who rise to greatness. One of my favorite stories is The Lord of the Rings. 
And as you've seen the movie, the movie is just totally twisted from the book. Aragorn knows from the very beginning that he is the son of the king and he wants to be king again. But in the movie, they portray him as this tortured individual who doesn't really know what he wants and he has to wrestle with the rise to the king. And that's the kind of character that we like, someone who's humble and, who's, and, and in that humility, they, they, they take on leadership only as a last resort because everybody's dependent upon them. And we like to watch these men rise to greatness out of the ashes. But what we see is that this is not the path of Jesus who is the King of Kings. Jesus doesn't merely rise to greatness. Instead, we see from the very beginning that Jesus is the King above all kings, is on a downward trajectory that's determined by his act of love for you and for me. Jesus Christ had all of the glory that could exist as he was eternally with and in the presence of the Father, shared all that it meant to be the king and, and a deity. He possessed all the dominion of God from the very beginning of the world. The whole world was made through him and for him, the Bible tells us. And yet he humbled himself by taking on to himself the fragility of humanity. And he entered into this world, stepping down from the throne of heaven into the earth and though he came to the sounds of angelic celebration he was commissioned by the voice of God at his baptism and sending him out into the, the, the wilderness he was admired by men and women and amassed an incredible following we see what we think is this rise of Jesus Christ but we realize that that's only a little bit of a blip because it isn't very long before all of those people who admired him and who loved him abandoned him and Jesus, who has come into Jerusalem to the shouts and the cries of the praise of his friends and the people that, that, that adored him and had seen all that he had done, they vanish. And Jesus is now alone in the hands of those who hate him. But that's the path of love. Love always requires sacrifice, a laying down of ourselves. Jesus' act of love didn't begin on the cross. It began the day we sinned. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve rejected the command of God and instead decided that they wanted to be gods in their own right, and it was at that moment that the journey of love began. Though it was authored from before the time, God wasn't caught off guard. That's the place where Jesus began his journey towards love. We see him now left, abandoned, and cast into the hands of those who pour out on him all the malice and animosity that humanity can muster. And whereas the Jewish leaders reject him as Messiah, the Roman guards now reject him as king in this mock coronation. Everything that's here you would expect to see take place when someone is, is coronated and crowned as king. They're given a royal robe, and they have a, a crown placed on their head, and they're given a scepter with which to defeat all of their enemies, right? And they are hailed and praised as the new king. All of that is twisted on its head as the, the soldiers seem to grab a, a used soldier's garment. It's a scarlet cloak and they wrap him up in it. It's just something that's laying around and they take thorns that grow all over Palestine and they fashioned it into some type of crown for his head and they pressed it down upon him and then they took the rod that he was supposed to use to apparently defeat his enemies and they beat him with it and repeatedly they lay down and they kneel down in this mocking adoration of this king they spit on him they slap him 
But they do this not realizing the reality that this is going to be the posture of all of humanity before him for all of eternity. This is the future and the promise for Jesus Christ, not despite his humiliation at the hands of these soldiers, but because of it. This is the path to his true coronation that Paul tells us about in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus will not need to rise in a military might or in strength or in power. The very name of Jesus Christ will one day be enough to bring every single human being to their knees in acknowledgement that he is the Lord, that he is king. And as they mock him here and now, they don't understand that they, what they mean to be scornful is actually a celebration of what is true. He is the true king. And when they're done mocking Jesus, they bring him out to crucify him. Now, whether or not it was because the gospel writers were writing to audiences that were very familiar with the process of crucifixion, or if it's because the gospel writers choose to focus more on a theological aspect, it's really interesting that when we go looking for the cross, we, we spend hours and make movies that are hours long that, that that chronicle the physical suffering of Jesus Christ. And yet the gospel writers typically sum it up in one or two words, and they crucified him. Because they understand that something so much more is taking place in here, but nevertheless, we don't want to ignore the fact that Jesus Christ did not suffer lightly. The word crucify is the heart the root of our word excruciating. What Jesus experienced on the cross was excruciating. After having been flogged, they took the T-beam of the cross and they placed it on his shoulders and they forced him to carry it as far as he could until he couldn't anymore. And that's when they reach over and they find this man, Simon of Cyrene, and they compel him to carry it the rest of the way. When they get Jesus Christ there, they lay him down and they nail him to the cross through the wrists. They take that cross beam and they lift it up and they drop it onto the upward post that would have been permanently there. And Jesus is left hanging there while then they take his feet and they nail them to the cross. And it's in that state that he hung until he died. Crucifixion was the most horrific manner of execution ever created by man in his immorality and his horror. It was a means of death that maximized pain while offering a display for all of those others that were around as a deterrent for rebellion and crime. Death came slowly through exhaustion and exposure. And it means something that as Jesus comes to the cross, he refuses this concoction of wine and myrrh both of which would have especially combined served as some type of narcotic effect that would have dulled the pain and dulled Jesus' senses, and Jesus doesn't want it. Instead, he walks into his death embracing all of the pain, all of the suffering, all of the exhaustion with a clear head and a clear mind, knowing exactly why he was there, knowing exactly who he was there for, knowing that though they mocked him, he was and is the king of far more than the Jews. 
But the mocking doesn't just stop with the soldiers. It extends to those who pass by because Jesus would have been crucified by a main road. And those who pass by begin to mock Jesus Christ by tempting him and clearing out, hey, you, you who said that you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. They're mocking Jesus as the one who has the ability to destroy the temple. What they don't understand is that they're declaring the reality that Jesus is the eternal temple, the true temple. Jesus is the one that fulfills what the temple was intentionally meant to and always meant to be. You see, as the public comes before Jesus right here, they are clearly aware of the Sanhedrin's false insinuations and accusations that Jesus was going to somehow destroy the temple. And we find that out in John chapter 2 where Jesus, in a, engage, as he's interacting with the, the religious leaders, responds to them at the temple, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What they don't understand is that Jesus there is not talking about some building made with human hands. He's talking about his own body. Do you notice the irony of what's going on here? Remember from a couple of weeks ago, the reason that they are crucifying Jesus, the crime that he is apparently guilty of that is, is what he's deserving of death for, is insurrection. He is supposedly a Jewish freedom fighter who wants to bring people to him and raise a rebellion against Rome. That's the insinuation. Oh, but by the way, he wants to destroy the nationalistic symbol that all the Jews adored, which is the temple. This freedom fighter who wants to set Jew, or Israel free from Rome supposedly wants to destroy the most prominent, significant symbol of Israel and Jewish religious freedom on the planet. Do you see the irony and the contradiction that is taking place here? And so they mock him for his declarations because Jesus isn't about this physical building. Instead, he is the new temple. He is the true temple. You see, the temple was always meant to be the place where God would dwell with his people. That was the tabernacle before the temple was built. That was the purpose of the temple. That the temple would be the place of, all, of every place in the world. The temple was the one place where God was supposed to be manifest. His presence was supposed to be there. And so the people were able to pray towards, run towards, gather at the temple. And it was gathering at the temple that they gathered with God. It was the place where God dwelt with man. What better place for God to dwell with man than in the man that was fully God? That's who Jesus was, the perfect God-man, the center of God's work on earth, the place where men and women are called to gather, to look, that they might see and know the Father. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so Jesus is now the greater temple, and while they mock him for referencing the destruction of the temple, they are destroying the temple that is his body. And he allowed his body to be destroyed that we might be rescued and redeemed. And in so doing, he becomes the greatest refuge for sinners and becomes the place where we will commune with God for all of eternity. Because that's what John declares in Revelation chapter 21. In verse 22, when he sees the new Jerusalem that is coming, he says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, the God Almighty, and the Lamb. 
Jesus is the place where the presence of God, the manifest presence of God, is perfectly fulfilled and brought such that he will be that for all of eternity. When we are in Christ's presence, when we are with him, we are with God. He is the true temple. But beyond that, he's the true Savior. The religious leaders now mock the role of Jesus Christ as Savior. They know that the Messiah is meant to be a Savior of the people. And so the religious leaders gather at Jesus here at the foot of the cross and they begin to deride him. They begin to mock him saying, you saved others, but you cannot save yourself. If you're really the Christ, which means the Savior, then the King of Israel, then come down from the cross that we may see and we may believe. This sounds really familiar if you've been studying through Mark with us. Because there was another point when the, the, these same leaders come to Jesus and say, would you give us a sign? If you would just give us a sign, we would believe you. Ignoring the fact that Jesus has been performing signs the entire time that he has been ministering. The entire three years of his life were full of signs of his power, of his majesty, of his might, of his identity. As he is able to speak truth. He is able to cast out demons. He is able to cleanse people of their sins. He is able to heal them over and over. He proves himself to be the manifestation and the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. And yet they've refused to see it to this point. And now they declare, if you would just come down, we'd believe. If you would just save yourself, we'd believe. The reality is, if Jesus saved himself, he wouldn't have been able to save us. Jesus didn't come to be the savior of himself. He came to be your savior and mine. And in order for that to take place, Jesus, whose name means God saves, had to trust in the plan and the purposes of his father to save him in time. And so we see Jesus here trusting in the Father and his plan for all that is needed as he refuses to save himself so that he might save us. The author of Hebrews brings this to light in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus knew all of the pain that he was going to face. And what we see right now is there is a very real physical aspect of the suffering of Jesus Christ. There is a very real emotional and relational aspect of the suffering of Jesus Christ as he hangs there and is mocked and derided and blasphemed are the three words that Mark uses in this verse, in this passage of Scripture. And he endures it all. I got to thinking, if that were me, in that witness box, and I had someone who was bringing false accusations and insinuations against me, what would be my response? I'd get angry. I'd be indignant. I'd want to sue the lawyer for false, you know, false accusations and insinuations and slander and everything else. I would be quick to defend myself. 
And the reality is that's who we are day in and day out, isn't it? Whenever someone, whether it's our wife, our husband, our children, our friend, our pastor, Sunday school teacher, when someone in our lives cares enough to point out our faults and our flaws, our tendency is to get defensive. Because we live with this notion of, I'm not really that bad. And we want to defend our innocence. We want to be blameless. We want to advocate for ourselves. But Jesus shows us something different because Jesus was slandered in our stead, in our place, so that we might be truly blameless before God. Jesus chose to endure the slander and the shame. According to Hebrews, he despised the shame. He spit shames in shame's face for your sake and for my sake. As he hung there and he was silent, even in the trials that he had before both the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders and before Pilate, the political leader, he chose to remain silent while they brought false accusations against him. Again and again. The reality is there isn't a single one of us that sits in the witness box being falsely accused. The reality is if, we're, if we are anywhere in that story, we are the guilty party hiding behind the glass, silent, while someone else, namely Jesus Christ, stands in our place and takes the guilt and the shame that we deserve. That's what Jesus does here. He takes the slander and the shame in our place so that we might be made blameless and righteous in the sight of God because of Jesus' sacrifice. It's easy for me to come before you each and every week and be discouraged and defeated. After all, I'm the one, I know my sins. I know the ones I've committed. I know the ones I've wanted to commit. I know my anger, my slothfulness, my lust, my self-centeredness. I know my sin better than anyone else. And I constantly hear that voice of the enemy in the back of my mind who says, what right do you presume to have to step up and teach others the ways of the Lord? And that voice, the one that's always there to accuse me, to accuse us of our sin, would send us into hiding or it would Stoke some fire within ourselves where we would fight to defend ourselves. But we have a God who modeled for us humility. We have a God who seeks us in our hiding to set us free. Jesus went to the cross knowing that he was falsely accused, enduring the physical agony, the emotional, term, tor, or the emotional turmoil and torment that was hurled at him by others. As we're going to see next week, he experienced the spiritual darkness that you and I deserve. And he did this because that was your place and my place, and he took it for us. As you know, we asked for prayer a couple of weeks ago for the staff to be seeking God's face in the direction of the church and, and what we need. And I encouraged the staff, and we read a book together called We Would See Jesus. And in that book, the author, Roy Heston, takes chapter by chapter some of the realities of Jesus. And one of those chapters is that Jesus is the truth. And it's when we look at Jesus, we see not just divine truths of who God is, but when we come to this wonderful cross, 
we find that it's not really so wonderful at all. It's wonderful in the sense of what it gives to you and to me, but when we look at Jesus on the cross, what we see is the truth of who we are and what we deserve. When we look at Jesus naked and bloody and beaten and rejected and scorned, abandoned, abused, the reality is that's the truth of what you and I deserve because of our sin. When we come face to face with Jesus on the cross, the only option for us is to be humble. That's who we're supposed to be, not Jesus. We're the ones who deserve that ridicule and that shame, but instead Jesus took that place and Jesus was resurrected that we might have a place we don't deserve. That's the glory of Jesus. That's the love of Jesus. That's what Jesus endured for you and for me so that when that voice comes to all of those who have been rescued and redeemed and born again by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have the ability to respond to that, that accusation that comes in our mind, even the, the conversation of those that are around us. When people start falsely accusing us, or maybe they're making a right statement, instead of rising to our defense, we have the freedom and the ability to say, you know what, you're right. And actually, you're wrong in one sense because I'm far worse than you ever actually think that I am. So you can criticize and critique me all day long. The reality is you're nowhere close to how horrible I actually am. And God loves me anyway. And Jesus loves me anyway. And Jesus took my place anyway. And in doing that, he's given me a new reality and a new eternal truth. That as Paul points out in Colossians, we are now blameless and above reproach because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So let me encourage you, as you live this life in Christ, the way to know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior is confession and repentance. It's to look upon Jesus Christ and see on him all of the punishment that you deserve for your sin. To believe that he bore it for you, that he died, that he was raised from the dead, that you might be given a gift that you don't deserve, which is everlasting life, forgiveness, grace, and mercy, and a brand new name as you're adopted into the family of God. That's salvation. And when you confess and you repent and you believe, you're saved. Once for all, right here, right now. If you would put your heart and your trust in Jesus Christ, you would be born again. So if you're here this morning and you have not received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can't say you've been born anew and that you know what it is to be in love and loved by God. Then I would invite you, confess and repent and believe today. It's the way into a life with Jesus Christ. The way of a life with Jesus Christ is confession and repentance and belief.
It's the same way in, is the same way we stay on the way that is Jesus Christ. By being humble enough to not defend ourselves when there is sin in our lives, to not hide when there is sin in our lives, but instead to come before the God whose love is unending and abounding, and to Jesus Christ who has finished everything for you, and trust in him each and every day to guard you, to keep you, to get you all the way home. That's sanctification. To hold fast to the faith and believe that Jesus' death on the cross was enough, period. That his resurrection from the grave is enough forever. So I would invite you, don't be quick to defend yourself, but like Christ, humble yourself. To hear the words of brothers and sisters in Christ, to hear the voice of our Savior that calls you out of sin and into life. Seek his face in confession and repentance. Look upon Jesus, who did everything for your salvation and for mine. We are called by Jesus Christ as his disciples to take up our cross daily and follow after him. Are you humbling yourself by taking up your cross and following Christ daily. If not, I'd invite you to come before him, receive his grace and forgiveness, to follow after him, and to experience life in Christ. Would you take a moment, would you go before the Lord in prayer? I'm going to invite you in just some time of silence in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Would you pray that he would reveal to you the ways that you might humble yourself, that you might seek his grace and his mercy, that you might see how Jesus took all that you deserve so that you might now live in freedom and grace and mercy. And I'll close with